Okay, morning. So just going to read first of all, and then Esther's going to pray after. So this morning's reading then is taken from Mark chapter 8, verses 31 to 38. So Jesus foretells his death and resurrection, beginning at verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And he called to him the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you for the words we've just read. Father, we thank you for your precious word. Father, we just pray that you would help us to set our minds on the things that are above. And Father, we just pray as we open your word now that you would help us to just hear your words and to open our hearts and just um, to take all in and pray that the precious truths would come through from your word. We ask it in your name. Amen. and Esther and thank you to Len and the band as well. Good morning everyone. We'll do it again. Good morning. You are here. Uh, thank you so much. Keep Matthew 8, uh, Matthew 8, Mark 8 uh, open. That's where we're going to be at the moment and uh, looking at this theme of following Jesus. Thank you to the boys and girls and to Chloe as well and we want you boys and girls to come along with us on this journey as we work through this discipleship pathway and move this water. I can see that going on the floor in a minute. We want you to journey with us. We want you to uh, see what it means to follow Jesus and to walk through this pathway that we're setting out before you. And hopefully you have the coloring sheet in front of you, that worksheet which helps in many ways to remember the verse that we read in verse 34. And there's a few other bits and pieces for you to get on with as well during this service. But we want you to feel part of this pathway as we journey through this. If you have been with us over the last number of weeks and months, I suppose now, we put a vision uh, out in September uh, to the church, and it's very, very simple, made up simply of a purpose. We looked at that just a couple of weeks ago before harvest, and our purpose uh, that we looked at then is to passionately pursue and proclaim the greatness of God in all things for the joy of all people. So that's the purpose, and then we have a pathway, which is what we're going to be working through over the next number of months. I know Christmas is going to get in the way in many ways, but we're going to be working through the 12 dynamics, if you have the booklet, the 12 uh, things that speak of what a disciple is and what a disciple uh, that we want to be and make. And then lastly, we have a plan that is yet to come, that is future. We haven't, have, haven't got those plans in place yet. 
And those plans are anything that we see that needs adjusted, anything that we see that we need to work on as we work through this purpose and path and pathway. Well, the aim of the pathway is to make mature and equipped followers of Christ who in turn make mature and equipped followers of Christ. That is the pathway's goal, is that it would help you in your Christian walk and me in my Christian walk and in the lives of our youngest disciples here to grow and become mature and be equipped in their Christian walk to then go on and not only share the good news of Jesus, but also to make disciples, which is obviously a very clear mandate in the Bible. And so we want that to be the goal. But here we begin with number one in the pathway. And we believed it was essential to put this first, and hopefully by the end of today you will realize why. And it's this, follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. Underneath that heading of follow Jesus, we wrote these simple words, to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and unashamedly and wholeheartedly follow Jesus in every area of our life. I'm hoping that that, when we wrote that, isn't too complicated for many of us here. But let me simplify it down for the boys and girls. You have this uh, worksheet in your lap, hopefully, that you're working on or have been coloring, or will do. And in that, there was a lovely phrase from the New Living Translation, and I want to use that in this simple explanation of what it means to follow Jesus. To give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. To give up your own way, to take up your cross and to follow Jesus. And Chloe so helpfully helped us as we began to understand what that meant. But before we get to dig a little deeper with all of that, let me set the scene here in Mark 8. In Mark 8. And in the first three verses, I want to spend just a few minutes just setting the scene again. And so have your Bible open. Jesus is teaching his close disciples about how he, Jesus, must suffer Many things, that's what he says. He must suffer many things. And he must then, after that, be rejected by all of the authorities. So, for everyone here to understand, those in that day, 2,000 years ago, who had any place of power, so that would have been people in government, could have been people in the churches and the synagogues, elders, chief priests and scribes. You've probably heard of those in Sunday school, boys and girls as well. All of those people will actually help to cause Jesus' suffering and they will reject Jesus and essentially they will kill him. All of those who the nation held in high esteem, those who everyone looked to in those days as people of really great importance, would actually, in a few days or months and weeks down the line from from where we are here, will be actually used by God to kill Jesus. But what's Jesus saying when he's speaking to his disciples? Remember, this this is Jesus talking to his close disciples. Well, he's saying here, he is preparing them for what is to come. And you say, well, that's obvious, isn't it? He's preparing them for his death, and he's preparing them also that he would rise again. We know that, don't we? But something else is happening here, I think. You see, as Jesus is speaking to his disciples about what it is to 
be the Son of Man or for the Son of Man to come, he is also, when he's telling them about what he's going to do, he's redefining, he is rewriting the book on what it is to understand Messiahship. And that's a big word, Messiahship, isn't it? But he's rewriting and redefining what it is for them to, to think about the Savior that they've been waiting for. He is doing that in these verses to the point where actually they don't recognize this person who would become under such rejection and suffering and would actually die. They don't see that as actually a savior. That doesn't really look like a king. That doesn't really look like someone who they've been waiting for for thousands of years, does it? That he would come and that he would suffer and that he would die and that he would rise again. That does not look to the world and to the disciples, like the the sort of king that they want to be following. And so Jesus is rewriting. He is redefining Messiahship. He is redefining who they think their Savior should be. Well, the king and the Savior that he's describing in these verses, the one who will suffer, be killed, and rise again, as I've said already, he's not the type of disciple that Israel wanted. See, I would say that Israel would have, the Jews in those days, would have read Isaiah 53. And many of us here have read Isaiah 53. And boys and girls, I would encourage you to go home or parents go and read that. It's a very stark chapter, isn't it? That speaks of a coming king who would suffer and die. And I'm sure that those disciples had read that. They probably knew it like the back of their hand. And yet they didn't make the link between it. And this Savior, this Jesus who was standing in front of them, who would suffer and die. They wanted someone who was strong and powerful. Someone who could come and overthrow Roman rule. Those people who were pressing them and oppressing them. Not someone who would come and be rejected and experience death. And so you see, Jesus here was teaching them, wasn't he? And yet the king described here, as we unpack it, it's really wonderful, isn't it? You see, the, the king described here his character and his actions. This king who would come and live and suffer and be put on a cross and take away the sin of the world and then rise again. This king here, although not the one that they wanted, was actually a king that speaks of great love. It's a Messiah who is loving and who is in control of all things, all nature, and speaks for and as God, and one who comes with real forgiveness for sinners. He was coming to meet their greatest need. They thought getting rid of Roman rule and all those authorities was the best and the, and the greatest need, but the greatest need that they had, as Chloe shared with us, we're going to get to in a minute, is their sin in their life. And so Jesus is teaching them exactly the type of Savior they need, and he was standing right in front of them. Well, Peter heard this, and if you've heard about Peter in the Bible, you will know Peter was being Peter here in these verses. Peter pulled Jesus to one side, and he rebuked him. That's what it says. What does that mean, rebuke? Well, it means he disapproved. He heard about Jesus talking about himself and how he would, again, as I said already, suffer and die. And Peter came and said, no way is this going to happen. I disapprove of everything you say. That is not going to happen, not on my Watch. 
Think forward. Think forward to where Jesus is taken, taken away by those authorities to be beaten and put on a cross. And where's Peter? Denying his Savior. But yet here backwards, he's saying, no way is this going to happen. No one's going to do this to my Jesus. Well, Mark says here, he says in verse 33, he uses the word, Jesus said these things plainly. What does that mean, plainly? Does it just mean that it was clear? Well, yes, probably in some ways. But actually, if you translate that word back into the original Greek, you come up with sort of two different types of words. And those words are this, boldly and confidently. So put them in here. Jesus said these things boldly and confidently. He spoke of what was yet to come in his suffering and his death and his resurrection, boldly. He boldly and confidently speaks of what is to come. But now look at verse 33. But turning aside, turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, let's go a little bit further here, and hopefully we can bring the boys and girls along with this. You have to remember here that Jesus, he is fully God, and he is fully man. That's really hard to understand. I understand that. But that's what he is. And so, having that in mind, we have this tension between his human nature and his divine nature. Jesus battles again with the temptation, the temptation to deny the inevitable. Didn't he just say he's come to die and suffer? But in his human nature, he's saying, I don't really want that. But yet in his divine nature, he knows that he was sent by God to do that to fulfill all that God has sent him to do. And so the temptation was to deny the inevitable over the reality and the purpose of God, which was exactly that. And so as Jesus hears Peter's rebuke, as he hears Peter talking in his ear saying, no, Lord, that's not going to happen. I disapprove of everything you say. Not under my watch. As he hears those things in his ears, he looks around at his disciples. He says, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Do you recognize the first four words? Get behind me, Satan. Do you recognize those words? Well, those words were spoken by Jesus in the wilderness when Satan was tempting him. Do you remember? They were the words Jesus used. Get behind me, Satan. Jesus knew that Peter's rebuke was an opposition to the essential design of the incarnation. And that's a lot of words there. But Jesus was sent from heaven to become a man who was born, in a, born as a babe in a manger. We're going to look at that in a few weeks' time. Christmas isn't far away. But he was born to die. That was the purpose. It went completely against the purposes of God that Peter would come and rebuke Jesus and say, no, that's not going to happen. It went completely against God's purposes in salvation of many, many souls. Peter's rebuke opposes a deep mystery of God, doesn't it? What's that mystery? Here's the mystery, and it's profound. You ready? For suffering is the only way to destroy the stronghold of Satan. Suffering was the only way. It was the only way that sin could be 
defeated. That the devil could be defeated. That all of us could be brought in. That we could have salvation. But with this in mind, Jesus shifts. And I know you're wondering, well, when are we going to get to the next few verses? Well, here we are. Verse 34. He shifts the spotlight. He moves the subject from himself to his disciples. And at this time, he also includes the other people who are around. Verse 34, and calling the crowd to him, he invites now others into the conversation. Why does he do that? Well, I guess because at this point, he's going to speak with such gravitas that he wants everyone to hear. Look at verse 34. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be also ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and the holy angels. Now, just for a minute before we move on, remember all that we've already said from verses 1 to verse 3 about Jesus telling us and showing us what a true Savior looks like. And now we move into the next six verses. And let me say this as we move into these verses. And this is really the core thing today. A wrong view of Jesus, a wrong view of Messiahship leads to a wrong view of discipleship. A wrong view of who Jesus is and what he came to do leads to a wrong view of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And so let me put up Messiahship and discipleship on the screen. And if we don't get the gravity of what Jesus is saying here in the first three verses of the scripture, that he, the Son of Man, would suffer, die, and experience resurrection, if we don't get that, we won't get what it means to be a true disciple of Jesus, which is the goal. The goal of this pathway, the goal of our life, is to be like Christ and to live like he, li- like he lived. And to live for the purposes for which he died. You see, any true disciple, death to ourselves, that self-denial that we talked about, that is giving up your own way, boys and girls, that you have on your sheet, that is necessary and a necessary means of salvation. Not that we have any part to play in our salvation. Not that self-denial makes us worthy of God's grace and saves us. But because of his grace... His mercy and love, because of that intense calling upon our life when He calls us to come and to be His child, His son or His daughter, because of the awakening of the Spirit, which is what happens in our life, He sort of opens our eyes like shutters opening on the front of a shop, and suddenly all the light comes in. Because of that, we want to, we must deny ourselves and take up our cross. That's the basics. That's the reality of what is going on here. Wasn't that what Jesus commands in verse 34? If you want to follow me, deny yourself and take up your cross. Let's look at this command for a minute. It's made up of two components, isn't it? Just look at the page. Look at the Bible. Deny yourself and take up your cross. That deny yourself, that's what we call self-denial. And then the second part of it is take up your cross. That there is what we could call cross-bearing. Cross-bearing. And here's the wonderful thing about Jesus' teachings. He doesn't just say... Go and do it. Go and figure that out yourself. No, he doesn't just say that. He says and he shows us how 
and why we are to do these things. And he here gives us four incentives, four motives. Did you see them when we read it? When Brian read, did you see them? Well, the first one is this. Losing equals saving, or saving equals losing. Losing equals saving, or saving equals losing. Two choices. Verse 35, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. This is a strange phrase, isn't it? Ever thought that? Very strange phrase. Well, really... And parents, you can, t- you, can, you can explain to your kids when you get home what a paradox means. <laughs> you might have to go and look it up yourself. Here we have a great paradox, a paradoxical statement, which at first glance seems really confusing. We have a person who wants to save their life, and in doing so, will lose their life. Okay, so someone who wants to save their life, and as they do that, they will lose their life. And then on the other hand, we have someone who wants to lose their life, and in doing so, they will save their life. Save, lose, and lose, save. How do we make sense of this? Well, what I think helps us to understand this better is to think about what we know of the cross. If you think back to the New Testament for a minute, or look back in history at that uh, way of suffering and death that they used, that form of, of punishment, which always led to death, of cross-bearing, people, putting people on a cross, you will begin to understand what it meant for people to die that way. Just think for a moment. This is pretty stark, but let me, let me lay it out in front of us. What does the cross of the New Testament, that awful, awful, excruciating form of death, speak of? Well, firstly, it speaks of a sign of, of, of opposition. When people came down the street in Jerusalem and they saw, or outside of Jerusalem, they saw those crosses up on the hillside maybe with people on them, it speaks of opposition. Those who stood against Roman rule. Anybody who stood against Roman rule or didn't obey the rules in a serious way would be put on the cross. The second thing the cross speaks of is utter shamefulness. It was utterly shameful. Why was it shameful? Well, because in those days, they stripped the person naked and they placed them on the cross. Shameful. Thirdly, there was indescribable suffering. Beaten, mocked, scorned for Jesus, crown of thorns pressed into his head, pierced hands and feet put on the cross. Indescribable suffering. Fourthly, As I've said already, it always resulted in death. No one got on a cross and then got off and walked around, came back to life. Well, Jesus except, but no one before Jesus did that. It always resulted in death, and Jesus died as well. Why do I put these on the screen? Well, firstly, because it shows in a very stark way the cost of bearing a cross. As you look at those four things you have to realize that they are going to cost everything, aren't they? It's going to cost everything to bear a cross. It requires us to be willing to give our life. And for some Christians in the world, even this very day, their cross-bearing, their Christian life, they 
walking around saying, I believe in Jesus, actually is costing them their life. You know, boys and girls, in this world that we live in, in this amazing place where we live, we have so many amazing freedoms, don't we? We came to church today without anybody stopping us. We came in this building without anybody telling us we couldn't come in. We have Bibles in our hands that we can open any day and read about who Jesus is and how to live like a Christian. That is a, an amazing freedom. There are people far away in this world t- today who do not have such freedoms that even if they speak of Jesus, their life will be taken from them. But it means for everyone surrendering Surrendering everything we have, dying to ourselves and our wants. Which leads me to the second thing that I want to show us today. And it's this. In some wonderful way, as we look at the opposites of these four things on the screen, then we see this in great full color. Let me put them up. The opposite to these four things. The first one is acceptance. The second thing is honor. The third thing is comfort. And the fourth thing is safety. They are the opposite to cross-bearing. Aren't these the things that we love? <laughs> if I was to say to you, what would you love today? Which, which, which uh, list would you pick? You'd pick the right one. Acceptance, honor, comfort, and safety. That's the sort of life we want to live, isn't it? That's the sort of thing we want to manufacture in our life if we can. They're the sort of goals that we often have. And yet the one who strives to save their life, remember, by pursuing these things, Jesus says they will surely lose it. Because that right column is not a realistic life of a disciple. It's more like the left one. It's more like what Jesus had to bear in his life. But here's the problem. The nature inside all of us desires these things. This is why Jesus calls us to deny ourselves. Our desire is that right column. And yet Jesus says, deny those desires. Deny those desires. You see, there is that sin that Chloe talked about in our life. And that sin continually wants to do the things in that right column. To have safety and comfort. To have acceptance and honor. That's the sort of way that our heart and mind wants to work. And in life, we'll do anything for that to happen in friends, friendship groups, in work, in business. We will do anything we can. And those things aren't necessarily all bad. But when they become the main thing, well, then we have to realize that actually we need to, as disciples of God, to kill off those desires. Because there are desires that we should have that lead to greater things. We're going to get to that in a minute. See... The second thing I want to put up here is this. Gaining the world equals forfeiting your soul. Look at verse 36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Here's Jesus' arguments. Here it is building as he argues. He poses a rhetorical question. And let me tell you, any rhetorical question in the Bible is just easily answered if you just turn the question into a statement. And here's the, here's the statement from the rhetorical question. There is no good in gaining the whole world if it forfeits your soul? That's the answer to Jesus' rhetorical question. In other words, there's no good in acceptance, there's no good in honor, comfort and safety, possession, money, status or fame. If that is your goal, if that is your desire, if that is what you are pursuing in your life, going back to our statement, 
If you are passionately pursuing, let's put them in, acceptance, honor, comfort, safety, possessions, status, fame, whatever it may be, if you are pursuing those things in your life, rather than the greatness of God and being a disciple like Jesus, then you are on a path where you will lose your life. And yet again, Jesus adds to his argument with a third motive. Gain the world, well, that still equals the fact that you cannot buy a soul out of hell. Look at verse 37. For what can a man give in return for his soul? Another rhetorical question here. And let's make it into a statement. And here's the statement. Even if you have the world, it cannot buy a soul out of hell. Even if you have the whole world, you cannot buy a soul out of hell. You can work tirelessly in your life, working to be the best and possess all you can. Yet if your soul is lost, nothing you will do will be able to redeem it. That's what Jesus is saying. See, redemption, and that's a big word, I know. That means Jesus buying us. He bought us on the cross, didn't he, by his blood. That redemption work, that's God's work. Gain the world, lose your soul, and never find a way to redeem it back. God is in the business of saving souls. It's the story of the Bible, isn't it, from the beginning to the end? Redemption. From the fall in Genesis right to the end. Buying back his people through his son, through his cross work and his resurrection. What can a man give in return for his soul? If even, if, even if you have the whole world, you cannot buy a soul out of hell. The fourth motive is this. Approval of man versus approval of Jesus. Look at verse 38. But whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let me pose a question to you all. Is the approval of the world more important to you than the approval and affirmation of Jesus? Let me ask the question again. Is the approval of the world more important to you than the approval and affirmation of Jesus? We're all going to stand, you realize this, maybe you know, we're going to kneel before Jesus one day. Everyone in this room, everyone who ever lived, everyone who's yet to come. We're going to kneel. We're going to bow before this Jesus. And at that point, this question becomes very stark if you think about that. Is the approval and affirmation of this world more important than the approval and affirmation of Jesus? Because on that day, he will either say, I don't know, didn't know you. He said, I did all these things. That's what they'll say. We did all these amazing things for you. And Jesus said, didn't know you. Didn't have a personal relationship with you. And yet there will be others who will come and he will say, well done. Affirmation. Well done. Good and faithful servant. Is the approval of the world more important 
or is the approval of Jesus and affirmation of Jesus more important to you? Is acceptance, honor, comfort, and safety your number one priority? Is that the goal for you? Do you hope that your life of discipleship is just going to be plain sailing? Do you hope that, as Len has already reminded us today, that you would trust Jesus and everything's going to be rosy and red? And yeah, as Len said, you know, it's not an easy road. There are discouragements and disappointments, hard days, good days too. Would rather, would you not, instead of acceptance and honor and comfort and safety, would you not rather have a savior like that lion who watches over us even when we're sleeping and slumbering, but in a relationship with that wonderful savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, as we said just two weeks ago, would you not rather have a joy unspeakable than acceptance and honor and comfort and safety? Would you not rather have joy that speaks and is real and tangible in your life, whatever the circumstance? Would you not rather have that hope? Would you not rather have that knowledge that Jesus is for you and therefore who can be against you? And if so, then when Jesus comes to gather his people, which he will do, you will know what it is to be in his family. You will know what it is to have that real joy and it will be everlasting then. But let me tell you this, those who strive for honor and comfort and safety, well, let me tell you, when Jesus comes, you will really know then what it means to be rejected. You will really know what it means then to be opposed. You will really know then what it means to be shamed and your soul will be lost for eternity. That's the stark reality this afternoon. So as I finish, let me say this. A turning from your pleasures of the world to the ultimate satisfaction that is only found in Jesus. Let me tell you that. Didn't he say that in John 10? Talks about, I am the great shepherd. I am the good shepherd. And he brings us in and he walks us beside still waters and green pastures. And there's abundant life. And joy everlasting. We need to turn from the pleasures of the world and we need to cling to Christ. Stop chasing the things that lead to death and follow the one who gives us life and everything we need. See, we have been freed from the bondage of sin. However, that does not mean now we don't struggle with sin. We do. And here's the reality. As we follow Jesus in our life, as we today maybe even reset and renew our minds about what it means to follow Jesus and the cost that's going to, the price that's going to have to be paid to follow Jesus. We have to realize that actually in our life we also have a battle going on. And John Owen, over 300 years ago, a very influential Christian writer, wrote this Be killing sin or it will be killing you. And so here is what I'm saying this self denial, this cross bearing, it's a daily expectancy for whoever here, it doesn't matter what age you are, young and old, every day we wake up, give thanks to God that he's been watching over us, that Lion of Judah who never sleeps nor slumbers, but as we step out of bed, let's put on our armor because this day is going to be a battle day. A battle against my heart, first and foremost. A battle to live in a world and follow Jesus when the world is telling us that actually there's a lot of other things that you could have that apparently give you joy. 
And yet, that helpful phrase that John Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. That is, deny, to your, deny yourself. Say, no, me lesser, Christ greater. Luke records actually the same account. We didn't read it today. You can read this account that we've read today in Mark 8. We can read it in Luke and we can read it in Matthew as well. But in Luke, he adds something, one word, which I think is so helpful to us as I finish. Just listen to this. And he said to you all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. This isn't just once in your life when you came to Christ and that was it. No, this is a battle daily. This is a daily expectancy. Follow Jesus. Deny myself and take up my cross. And so the new person now in Jesus desires, hopefully, to starve the old life, that old man who comes in and, and tempts us to sin, gives a foothold to the devil in our life. The new person in Jesus that we've looked at, this new person who's following Jesus, or his desire now, their desire, is to starve that old life, to create new habits to kill off the old ones, to grow with his church, to grow with the church, to with the family of God, to serve on his mission and every day work hard with the Spirit's help to battle our sinful desires. It's not easy. It's not plain sailing. But Jesus has promised he's given us a helper in spirit to help us every day to battle and to fight against the desires of our flesh and the desires that come in against us from this world. So we need to take up our cross, young and old, overcome temptations, witness for Christ no matter what. Whatever the cost, we live in a very free world, but yet more and more it presses us as Christian believers. It goes against what God is saying and they inevitably is coming, maybe not for us, maybe for our kids. Where standing for Christ will cost more than it costs us today. Nevertheless, we must realize that Jesus gave everything. He took up his cross, faithfully went, and he bore that cross for us. And so we too, followers of Jesus, deny ourselves, take up our cross, and unashamedly and wholeheartedly follow Jesus in every area of our life. May the Lord help us as we do that. Let's pray. Father, we know following Jesus and his example is a tall order, yet you call us to do it and you wouldn't call us to it unless you, would, unless you were ready to equip us and give us all that we need for that to happen. And so Lord, we trust you and we ask that your spirit would help us as we live this life following Christ. And Lord, may it be first and foremost, may we have the right view of who Jesus is. May we live our lives according to his greatest example. And Lord, may we go out and live unashamedly and wholeheartedly, lifting up our cross daily, dying to the wants and the desires of the old self and living now for the desires of Christ his purposes, and his mission. And so, Lord, help us in every area of our life to do that, we pray.
in Jesus' name. Amen. The guys are going to come and lead us as we finish today, as we finish in song and uh, we stand and we will sing together as we do that. And this is the end of our service. There's no communion. Communion is this evening. Please join us for that. It'll be a great time around eating and drinking together at the Lord's Supper. And so we're going to sing this. Christ is my reward and all my devotion. Now there's nothing in this world. And so let's stand and let's sing together.